Well, I want to remind us one more time that the main point of the book of Revelation is that we may be encouraged. All that was written in the past, according to Romans 15.4, was written for our encouragement. And we also find, as we look at God's word, that God intends, God means for his people to understand his word. God, God's word is to be understood by all and any who are humble and dependent readers who are willing to obey. We find that in John chapter 7, verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching, whether my teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking from my own authority. And because of John 7, it is then incumbent upon me and all Bible teachers to teach in such a way that you become independently dependent upon the Word of God. You don't need to be dependent upon any super apostle or any super teacher. Now, we go to other teachers because they also have the Holy Spirit in them and the Holy Spirit has led him or her to give us counsel from God's word. But you must be like the Bereans and you must go yourself to God's word to see if the things spoken to you are true. And so I am sometimes asked by people who are concerned about issues of end times and they say, how do you read your Bible? And I say, that's easy. In English, usually sitting down. <laughs> Somewhat nonplussed, they reiterate as if I didn't understand what they were asking. And they'll say, do you believe that the Bible is literal? And this is a mistaken question, I believe. Because I know what it is that they're trying to get at by saying that. But I think the, the old saying is true. You never get a right answer to the wrong question. And the answer, I say, is that I take the Bible as the author intends it to be taken. In other words, poetic passages ought to be taken poetically. Didactic sections as if they are real, literal teachings. I also look at historic passages and I believe that the things that are taught in these historic passages literally happened. Yes, I am one of those weird fundamentalists that believes Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. Amen. Amen. Now, when you get to apocalyptic passages, it gets tricky because the question is Satan literally a dragon? Does this literal dragon fly after a woman who's running away from him in Revelation chapter 12? Or as Pastor Benji asked a couple of weeks ago, does Jesus really have white hair? Well, of course not, because he has a perfect body and he died at about 33, so, you know, his hair was whatever natural color. Okay, some of you smirked. I was, I was hoping for a little more than a smirk, but that's okay. I, I understand. I don't know any serious Bible expositor that would say yes to these questions. But 
Then we have to ask the next question. If that's so, what do these symbols mean? Well, this is where there are multiple schools of thought that divide. Nevertheless, no matter what your eschatological position, you must recognize that there is much in Scripture that is figurative. But we also must understand that there needs to be a high standard to take any individual, any given passage figuratively. And then we must, with sober minds and pure hearts, interpret these symbols as they ought to be interpreted. So allow me to give some hermeneutical principles, some how-tos when concerning interpreting God's Word. And I've adapted the principles I'm about to give you from a book by a guy's name Fee and Stewart, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, which, by the way, is an excellent book. And if you are interested in understanding God's Word, Fee and Stewart, How to Read a Bible for All It's Worth. Um, so my first principle, apocalyptic literature necessarily uses symbols to communicate truth. So a problem arises. Well, if it's a symbol, then obviously it's figurative. It's not true, right? Wrong. All the Bible is true. I should get another amen for that. Amen. Amen. All the Bible is true. Symbolic truth communicates true truth differently than didactic truth. Didactic simply means clear, step-by-step teaching, for example, like you see most of in Paul. And this truth that biblical apocalyptic literature teaches is this. God will enter into time and history to destroy the wicked and to redeem the righteous. Amen. Amen. God is coming back and God is going to win. That is the truth. John's revelation can be condensed into two words. God wins. And I love amens. Keep it coming. Okay. I must be going tonight. Revelation leads us to expect that Jesus will return suddenly, personally, visibly, and bodily. This you must believe. This is exactly what all four of us up here last week believed. And it's why we can shake hands and love each other and call each other brothers because our differences amount to a small amount because we know that Jesus is coming back. The second principle for interpreting, the second hermeneutical principle is John's revelation is literature. Now what do I mean by that? John's Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a unit from beginning to end. It contains various genres of literature within it, but it does so using characters, setting, plot, progression, protagonist, antagonist, and it has a conclusion. All of the revelation of John is to communicate that God will come into history and win. And his story that he's explaining in his book of Revelation leads us to expect that there will be elements that are a part of the story. In other words, that are figurative. Not story as in fiction, 
Story as in a unit written to tell the truth in a vivid, non-didactic manner. Not a straightforward teaching manner, but one using symbolism and figurative speech. The third principle we get, and all this, by the way, uh, hopefully you'll have noticed by now, is in your notes uh, in case, and the backside is empty if you want to write notes. Uh, Number three, John's revelation is also a letter and a prophecy. Unlike most apocalyptic literature, John signed his letter. Apocalyptic literature was widespread in the first two centuries of the church. Lots of people were writing fantastic, vivid stories about how the world was going to end. But John signed his letter unlike all the rest of them. And because it is a letter, it is written to you and me, because it is a letter, we should expect a level of straightforwardness as opposed to complete fantasy that some of these others were. We should believe it, we should recognize it as truth as it is intended to be understood. John's revelation is the only biblical apocalypse and therefore it is trustworthy and we can even have a discussion here about what does it mean without getting into fights. Amen. Thank you, George. Number four, John's Revelation, the book of Revelation, uses recognized symbols and symbols that he translates himself. Let me give you an example of this. John and many apocalypse talked about a beast rising out of a sea. Now, when you read in apocalypses uh, about a beast rising up out of the sea, that apocalypsis is talking about a world empire that's trying to come and conquer everything. That's that's what the symbol means in apocalyptic literature. When you go and see a $300 billion movie at the local theater, you're going to see some literary repetitive garbage. I mean, no, forget I said that. Uh, Stuff that is used over and over and over again until we want to puke. But it's just kind of how that style of art works. And we love it when they don't result, uh, um, relive these cliches. But so John uses symbols like that, that he would expect everybody to understand because they know what apocalyptic literature is all about. But then he also used symbols that he told you what they mean. He talks about seven lampstands and he tells you these seven lampstands stand for seven churches. And he uses that symbolism to talk about the church as a whole and the church throughout history. These are clear, understandable symbols. Now, thing is, is we need to know this, and then when we know it, it doesn't change the fact that we need to still interpret these symbols. Are we talking about Rome here? Are we talking about, you know, some other empire that has arisen in history? But it, it, we still must interpret them, but it simply leads us to expect that we can find the right resources to interpret at least the large ideas of John's revelation. 
And we must, if we're going to understand the book of Revelation and all biblical apocalypse, for example, in Daniel, we need to avoid two problems that Western Christians are very prone to fall into. We need to, number one, avoid the problem of trying to make all the pieces fit. We, we feel like we have to make something out of every single thing and every single clause and every single verse. Now, what I'm not saying here. Don't hear me say that God's mind is not infinitely big and he can make all these things fit. And when we look backwards on them someday when we're in eternity, we will see that. We will see how all these little itsy bitsy little things fit. But what I'm trying to stop us from doing is we, we try to nitpick and then we, we try to put our own spin on all the little details when we're missing the big picture. God wins. Amen. Amen. And if we can understand that, then we'll also avoid the second problem is that we, have, we must avoid limiting God. The next, yeah, there you go. In this case, we very often limit him in his ability to write a story that is fantastic fantastically complex and contains billions of characters whose eternal destinies are riding on what God has said. And we can rejoice because God wins. And we must stop avoiding that, or we must, we must avoid limiting God. Now I want to speak about this limiting God Specifically, in looking at the three main ways the book of Revelation is interpreted. And it's important that we get this. The first way that I want to talk about is preterism. And preterism is the idea that prophecies are fulfilled in part or in whole during the first centuries A.D., now, some of what is written in the book of Revelation is obviously referring to the Roman Empire and to the, the elements around the Roman Empire. And that's why some see fulfillment of these visions that John has as entirely or mostly about 1st and 2nd century, primarily up to the 5th century A.D. And they, they see a lot of these prophecies fulfilled. John saw things in his context and he communicated his prophecies with regards to what he saw. The locusts that he sees in Revelation chapter 9, for example, I think can be very well explained in part by understanding the Roman hordes that came and sacked Rome in the 5th century. I think that that is a fair partial interpretation. The second big way of interpreting the, uh, the book of Revelation is idealism. And idealism seeks to see the, the book of Revelation as a group of truths that explain the, the interaction between God and man between God and what he's doing in history and wicked men who are seeking to oppose him and godly men who are part of his church and his family seeking 
uh, Lord God to come quickly so that his kingdom will come instead of our petty little kingdoms, right? And so some of what is said in the book of Revelation obviously points to truths that what must always be true of Satan, of evil men in the church. And this is why Bible-believing and Christ-honoring people throughout history can look at John's revelation and see the amillennial and the post-millennial fulfillment. But I meant to say a second ago, preterism leads to a... Um, a, a view of post-millennialism and there are elements about that that we should accept and we should bring into our understanding. The third major family of interpreters of the book of Revelation is futurism. And futurism says that the prophecies in Revelation refer to a time that is still future to us. It is absolutely clear, at least to me, and, and I, I believe to most Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people, that much of what is said in the book of Revelation refers to a time that is still to come. We haven't got there yet. And there, there's much in the book of Revelation that is prophetic. In other words, it literally communicates historical realities that we will one day look back on and say, look, History, that is what literally happened. And it is apocalyptic. In other words, it symbolically communicates mostly spiritual realities. For example, Satan is the great dragon. I don't think Satan really is a dragon, but he acts like a dragon, right? Just like I don't think Satan literally is a lion either. But as we read uh, two weeks ago in 1 Peter 5, 8, He's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking you to devour, right? And this, if you and I can avoid black and white statements that the book of Revelation is all this, or the book of Revelation is all that, or all this, then what we can do is we can take the preterist view and we can say, I can see that. I can see how John could be describing realities. One of the most famous ones of this is the number 666. When you, when you look at it, it refers right back to Nero. And self-consciously, perhaps, I don't know if this is true. We'll have to wait till we get to John and ask him. Perhaps self-consciously, he was like, oh yeah, remember that Nero guy? He was one of these antichrists and his number was 666. It also happened to be what God told him and I think he put these together and the preterist view is partially right and the idealistic view is partially right. Of course, you look at the seven churches in Revelation chapters two and three and you see all kinds of churches throughout history that mimic exactly what these churches are going through. It's an idealistic view of the church. But I think primarily, my opinion, that Revelation is primarily a futurist book and it's pointing to things that we have not yet experienced and hopefully will experience quickly so that Jesus will come. And that is why godly, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people can disagree agreeably. 
And that is why we can know that these different emphases that we place on the visions that John had can come out and explain true truth about what God is going to do. So tonight, I want to introduce you, or I want to convince you to take my glasses, which are premillennial glasses, and look then at the Bible to see. And I believe, in spite of the fact that godly men can disagree, that when we get to the millennium, I'm going to be able, in a very unsinful way, because I'll have my redu- me, you know, glorified flesh, I'll be able to say, told you so. <laughs> So, let's get started. I have three main points, and they are at the bottom of your sheet. So, it's just the way it worked out on the sheet. All right. I want to look at the fact that the Bible speaks of two resurrections. Now, the amillennial, postmillennial position on this uh, subject is that there is only one physical, bodily resurrection of human beings that are also not divine. And they believe that those who die in Christ are brought into the presence of Christ in this intermediate state, in this time that we are living in right now, when those who die in Christ, they go to be in the presence of Christ right now. That's what we call the intermediate state. And they believe that that is where the saints reign with Christ. And we don't, by the way, deny the intermediate state or that godly people are with him. But that's not... I don't think, what the first resurrection spoken about in Revelation 20 is. So let's read verses 4 and 5. We're going to be here, be back and forth here. So verse 4, John says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on the thrones were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Who are those, by the way? The people who love Jesus and follow him in their lives. And he explained that in each of the Gospels. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Who are those? Not quite. Those are the people who have been martyred throughout church history up until the tribulation. But then he specifically says, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and hands. And that's where they're talking about the tribulation saints. Okay? So you have what... So what do you have? You have all of the people who have followed the Lord, whether it was Yahweh before the New Testament or as Jesus um, after the beginning of the New Covenant, who are now given thrones. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This was the first resurrection. Now, If it says the first resurrection, that means, in my mind, that there's going to be at least one more resurrection. And I think it's it's safe to say that. We also note that the Greek word here that is translated resurrection most naturally refers to a physical resurrection. Now, to be fair, to be fair, the amillennial position spends a lot of ink on that, and they find that there is an argument that this word can be taken to mean a spiritual 
resurrection. And, and they have an argument for doing it. I'm not going to get into it right now. You can go to Riddle Barger or to Sam Storms and read that. But I don't find that argument convincing about this particular passage, even if it can be used elsewhere in the New Testament. The fact is that there are some verses that seem to indicate there is only one resurrection. Famously, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, and also famously, Acts 24, 15, where these two passages seem to indicate that there's one resurrection. But what I want to note about them, without spending too much time because we got to move on, if you go and look at those passages, you won't find that they contradict an idea that there is also a second resurrection. Do you see how that's important? Where a specific passage is talking about a specific event, it's not referring to another event that might or might not happen. It's not saying there's only for sure one and only one resurrection. Okay, now then there are also some other passages that seem to be ambiguous. There might be one, there might be two. We're not really sure based upon these passages. And those are, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, 23 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. But then we get to other passages that I think are fairly clear that there is at least two resurrections being thought of. And that is in Luke 14, 14, where Jesus says, you will be blessed. He's talking here about bringing people who can't afford to feed you and you bring them into your house and you give them dinner. And he says, why, why are you blessed? Well, they can't pay you back. And so instead you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now you do a little bit of thinking here and you realize biblically that all the people who've ever lived on the face of the earth are not just, right? I mean, that, that seems fairly straightforward. So we see that there is a resurrection of the just and oh, well, there's these other people. So there has to be something for them that we find out is called the resurrection of the unjust later on. But here in John 5, 29, we actually learn a little bit more. And he says to come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So we clearly have in John 5, 29, two resurrections, the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of judgment. We get to Revelation chapter 20 and we see that there is a first resurrection and evidently that that is the resurrection of the just. To come later, we find out as we read, and we're going to read here in a minute, that's a thousand years later after the millennium at the end of history. A general rule for interpreting all of the Bible, you can take this to the bank, one general rule for interpreting the Bible is that you must always understand a teaching in Scripture from a clear passage to be a controlling interpretation for passages that are less clear. If you've got a teaching in a passage that is dead clear, you can't mistake it, this is going to inform how you interpret this other passage that... Mm, that could be taken a couple of different ways, okay? And in this case, there is a clear teaching in Revelation that there is more than one resurrection, which we find out later there's two, all right? 
There, and there are no passages that deny this teaching, but there are some passages that you're really not sure about. So what do we say? There's two resurrections. That, that seems important. Now, this is no small matter. And again, I want to be fair. The amillennials come back and they have their arguments, but I, for one, am not convinced by that. And you, I encourage you to look into it yourself, to be a Berean and go to the scriptures yourself and not just take it on my word. Because remember, I'm here to teach you how to be independently dependent on the word of God, certainly not on what Greg Burtnett says. Wow, I really expected an amen from at least a few of you on that one. Okay, so um, if there is only one resurrection, then the only option biblically to take would be the amillennial position. Clearly, this is a do or die thing. If there's only one resurrection, then amillennialism is it. If there are two resurrections, then it's a do or die thing. Premillennialism is the only available option. Okay. Revelation, I believe, should be taken literally as predicting a 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth with his saints. And I think that there are two categories of passages that make this clear. The first one is there will be a time based upon several passages in Scripture where God's people will reign on earth. And two, there are passages in God's word that seem to describe a life that is radically different from the one in which we are living right now, and yet does not adequately explain the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state, what we generally call heaven. So, Let's look once again at our chief text, which is Revelation chapter 20, 1 through 6. And I am sorry, it's only due to time that I'm not doing verses four, 7 to 14, because there's so much more there, but I only have so much time. The brain can only assume what the seat can handle. So uh, let's, let's do this. <laughs> Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. I take the great chain figuratively. Again, Satan isn't going to be bound by a physical chain. He's a spirit, right? But I think that God can control even a spirit. Amen? Amen. Okay. And whatever that is, we're calling it a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated upon them were those for whom to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not, worshipped, had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life. There is that word resurrection um, expanded out to what it 
means until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This, I believe, is the controlling passage. This is the clear passage that explains what these other passages I'm about to read um, point to. So let's get at them. I want to look first at the reigning passages, what I'm calling that. And I look first at Matthew 19. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children and lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, let's interpret this passage figuratively first. Okay? The figurative interpretation of Matthew 19 right here is that those who are Christians, we belong to a family and even if our stuff is taken away by a wicked government or by those who are opposing Christ on their own, we have brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers around us who will love us and who will provide for our needs. Now let me ask you a question. Is that true? No. Well, a bit. it ought to be. It ought to be true. And, and it's woe to us that, that it is not more true. I don't think that quite adequately explains what Jesus is getting at here. You understand what I'm saying? I think that there's something that on this earth, this cannot be true. This way of life in which we are living right now. No. The Syrian Christians who are being butchered right now don't walk down the street and get new land. It's not there. Yet, but there will come a time, and this is, I showed you this um, last week, and I think this is the best explanation of this passage that I see. The bottom line that you see, the dark, thick, dark line there is this age. It's, it's the nature as we are currently experiencing it. Now, Christ came and the upper line is the age to come. The, the upper line is the kingdom of God among men. And it came in an already not yet, we've, we talked about that phrase a couple of times already, in an already not yet manner, and it invaded earth. So Jesus was able to say in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. So, now, the last days, the New Testament consistently calls the entire church age, these last 2,000 years, as the last days. You are living right now in the last days. Whether the Antichrist is alive right now or not, I don't know. But I do know that right now is the last days. And one of these days, oh, blessed day, Jesus is coming again. Thank you. Let's try that again. Jesus is coming again. Amen. 
Amen. And when he comes, the kingdom of God will fully invade. And there will be a parallel line which those who are alive now in Christ will be glorified and we will live on this earth during what we call the millennium period. And that is when, in my view, in my understanding, and there are plenty of Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, godly men and women who disagree with this, and I, I respectfully concede that, but I believe that's what Jesus is saying here. We will receive fathers and mothers and lands and houses and eternal life. And that is how I see this. And there will be Christians, and unfortunately there will also be non-Christians who are alive then. But again, that passage is not, this one here, the Matthew 19, is not the controlling passage you can easily see an amillennial view there and you can easily see the figurative interpretation as being the right one if it weren't for the controlling passage in Revelation 20. Likewise, another passage is Luke 19, 17, where Jesus said to them, Well done, good and faithful servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Man, I can't come up with a figurative interpretation of that. That takes Jesus' words seriously. You will have authority over 10 cities. Do you, anybody in this room have authority over 10 cities? If you do, you're doing a lousy job. <laughs> right? I mean, come on. Let's talk about this here. And again, if you did, would the Syrian Christians be being slaughtered? No, it's not happening, at least not yet. Revelation 2, 26, 27. To the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have authority for my Father. Now, I think John is being figurative here. He's in a clearly figurative book. He's in a clearly figurative passage within that book. And I think that this, he's using figurative language right here. But that figurative language has to be teaching something. It has to be giving a, an understanding of reality that is true truth. So are we going to be marching around with rods of iron? Well, maybe. I would prefer mine iron wood because I like, I like wood and I like carving it and making it look nice. And I'll ask him when we get there if I can make that. Okay, guys, you got to laugh at me sometimes. <laughs> then I'll know you're awake, you know. <laughs> Some of you might want a gold staff. Some of you might, you know, I don't know. Maybe ladies, you'd want a diamond staff. That'd be pretty wicked, huh? <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> My argument here is not that this is the controlling passage. I think this is a figurative passage, but I think it understood in light of the controlling passage, it helps my overall argument. And I have one more verse to present on this. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. 
And they sang a new song, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and every language and every people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Which, by the way, is exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, so that we can be excited that right now you and I are a kingdom of priests. You and I are sons and daughters of the king. And there is a sense in which we're reigning right now. There is a sense in which those departed saints that we have loved in our lives are with Christ in the intermediate state and are reigning with him and praise Jesus for that. But he goes on and he continues and he finishes and says, and they shall reign on the earth. Wow. Wow. Now, my English teachers, God bless them, had had told me that reigning on earth is reigning on earth. And again, I I really, I don't want to belittle the amillennial position. I, I really don't. Please, if you're taking me as that, don't. I'm giving my view. I'm trying to convince you to wear my glasses, and I can't give you all the arguments. But I have one more argument that is not talking about the reigning. And I want to look at Revelation 6, 9 to 11. When the angel opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Okay, these are the saints who have been martyred, I'm going to say, throughout history. Some might say it's just the... the um, Uh, tribulation saints. I I think they're all of them. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were killed as they themselves had been. The key in this is they were told to rest. Now, Could that mean that they're reigning? Yeah, it could. I think I would have worded it differently if that was what I was trying to communicate. And George and I were talking before I got up here, and and perhaps there are other passages, but the other passage that we can think of that talks about the intermediate state specifically is Luke chapter 16, and what I believe is a parable of Lazarus and Abraham. And what is... Lazarus doing. He's kicking back with Abe. He's resting. That doesn't communicate. Um, and the other passage, George, is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where, where Paul talks about the saints that are in the intermediate state are unclothed. They're, they don't have their physical bodies on them. And so what, what are they doing? Well, it doesn't really say what they're doing. It just kind of says that they're hanging with Jesus. Now, could that be reigning? Yes, it could be. But that's not how I interpret what appears to me to be the plain reading. So, when I look at Revelation chapter 20, I see two resurrections. I also see that being a controlling passage that can... Um, takes into consideration a lot of other passages that seem to indicate that Christians will be reigning on the earth. And I have some evidence, even if it's not conclusive evidence, that says that the saints are not reigning now, in other words, in the intermediate state. 
And I want to look very briefly at one more set of passages, and that is what I'm calling the other nature passages. Now, if I give a straightforward reading of the text, there is, a pat, there is an impression that there is a 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. And while there are no other passages in the Bible that specifically say the word millennium, there aren't any, it's not found in the Bible, there are passages, there are prophecies, not apocalyptic literature, but prophecies that seem to indicate a reality that is different than ours, but can't quite be explained by the eternal state, by heaven. And so let me just quickly water ski through Isaiah chapter 11. In verses 1 through 5, it looks like there still needs to be judging. There's going to be people who are judging the land. In 6 through 9, they, it's obviously described that it's not a reality in which we are living right now. Again, these passages are on here. Please go home and read these passages for yourself. I can do no more than water ski here. But then... In verse 10, it describes a time when people come to the Lord whose place is, palace is glorious. And I think there's other passages that describe this as well that are perhaps more figurative. The Ezekiel passage, for example. And then in verses 11 to 16, God still takes care of his enemies. He still handles his enemies. Well, if the first 10 verses are the eternal state, if you take them as describing heaven, then what's God doing blasting his enemies? His enemies are already going to be in hell at the eternal state. There will be no more enemies. So that doesn't seem to be the eternal state. And in Isaiah 65, there seems to be um, children being born in Isaiah 65, but then you have lions and lambs laying down together and you have children playing in front of viper pits. I have never let my boys play in front of viper pits. <laughs> Ever. My wife would shoot me. And, and that would be the end of that. So um, we're not going to go there. Donna told me years ago, probably before we got married, she said, I hate snakes. And Genesis 3.15 is my reason. <laughs> end of discussion. And I submitted. <laughs> Zechariah 14, in verses 1 to 3, Jerusalem is attacked. Verses 4 and 5, God saves Jerusalem. 6 and 7, God seems to temporarily change the laws of nature. And we're not clear there. Does he change the law of nature for one day? Or does he change the laws of nature for a thousand years? I don't know. That, that verse, up in the air as far as I'm concerned. 8 to 11, God protects Jerusalem. He's still got enemies. 12 to 15, God will plague his enemies. I like that. 16 to 19, God will enforce people worshiping in Jerusalem. Well, now wait a minute here. If we're in the eternal state, what does it mean he's forcing people to come worship him? Well, he's forcing people to come worship him because they don't want to. But if we're in heaven, what's our main job going to be to joyously do? Worship God. He is not going to force you people to do that. Your heart will be changed and you'll be like, woohoo! Let's worship. 
And then in 20 and 21, God will enforce his holiness in Jerusalem. My point in these verses is simply to say that there are at least these three passages, and there are other ones that are less clear, that to me indicate that nature has been altered. It hasn't, we haven't got to the new heavens and new earth yet, but nature has been altered. Sheep, lions, tigers, these things happening, but there's still sin. There's still childbirth, both of which will not happen in the eternal state. So that is my cumulative evidence for taking Revelation chapter 20 as describing a literal thousand years that is going to come and we will be reigning on earth with Christ. Let's pray before Michelle Winger hangs me. Lord, thank you. Praise Jesus for Michelle and for Darla and for those taking care of our kids. And Lord, I pray uh, that you would bless our children and that you would bless us so that we would be men and women of God who live like you are coming soon. Fill us with your spirit, Jesus. Fill us with your grace so that we may walk today in light of the knowledge of God and the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, and let us give glory to you, anticipating the reward you will give us when you welcome us home. In Jesus' name, amen. That is your conclusion. Thanks for coming, everybody.